Hello, church. My name is Yesul, and we will not be reading today's passage from Revelation 2, verses 2 to 7, and Mark 14, 32 to 42. Please follow along in your own Bible or on the screen. Revelation 2, 2 to 7. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. Uh, my name is Jay. I'm one of the pastoral staff members here at the church, and I will be delivering um, today's word. And as we continue on in our sermon series on worship, I want to talk about a spiritual discipline that is very difficult for me and perhaps very difficult for many of you, right? And um, like try, try guessing which discipline I'm talking about. Um, if you haven't guessed, it's probably, you know, it's, we're talking about the discipline of prayer, right? Prayer is something that is very difficult for many of us, and I think it's also because of the fact that we are people who are very self-sufficient. Uh, we are people who believe in the uh, power of efficiency, uh, and we also believe that, you know, we're very impatient, and we want answers, and oftentimes, we don't receive answers in prayer, right? And I think prayer is something that is very important as we talk about worship because it is an expression of our worship to God as we communicate our adoration, our gratitude, and our need for him no matter what life circumstance we are in. And so as we continue on our sermon series through worship for the next three weeks, we're going to be doing something a little bit different, uh, something that uh, perhaps, if I'm honest, might make some of us feel a little bit uncomfortable, uh, so, and it, even if you are a Christian that has grown up in the church for the majority of your life, or if you're someone who is very brand new to the faith or someone who is seeking, uh, what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks might be a little different or something that you might not expect or something that you might not feel comfortable in. 
Uh, for, so as I mentioned in the very beginning of the worship sermon series, I said in the first three weeks, we're going to be talking about like the theolog theological foundation of what worship is. What does it mean for us to worship God the Father? What does it mean for us to worship Jesus the Son? What does it mean for us to worship the Holy Spirit? And the next three weeks, what we're going to do is apply that in our corporate worship setting as a body, as a, as a community together, that we're going to actually apply very practical aspects of worship. So for this week, what we're going to do after the sermon is we're going to have a time of extended prayer. And you're like, oh, no, I shouldn't have come today, right? <laughs> and I, I think, and, and this is the reason why I, I believe worship is, in, in the deepest form, uh, one of the greatest avenues and the greatest expressions that we can show to display our adoration and dependence and, and complete reliance upon a God that is sovereign, upon a God that is gracious, upon a God that loves us. So before we go into what we're going to be talking about, uh, we read two different passages who, you know, we might think is not really connected at all, and I'm going to be explaining that, right? And so before we go into our extended prayer time, we're going to look at these two passages uh, to really lay the foundation of why prayer is such an important aspect of worship to God. Okay? So first, we're going to kind of discuss why don't we pray, okay? Why is it so difficult to pray? And then next, we're going to look at how worship or prayer is a deep expression of our worship to a sovereign God. So as we read here in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 2, and I just want to give you a brief background of it. Uh, if you've never read Revelation, um, it, it's an interesting book. Um, but the first three chapters is an epistle. It's a letter. So it, much like the letters that Apostle Paul wrote or Apostle John, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a, a warning. It's a, it's a message, an encouragement to physical churches that were ex in existence in Asia. And then the, after chapter 3, the latter part, that's apocalyptic literature. That's the part that gets funky. Okay, so we're reading chapter 2 here, and we're going to read it as an epistle, as a letter that Apostle John writes as he is, uh, you know, given this message to the seven churches. <clears throat> and in this message, it begins with a message to the church in Ephesus. Uh, and for the church in Ephesus, what we see is that there is a similar vibe between the church in Ephesus and perhaps our church specifically and the culture here in the Bay Area. Uh, it begins with a, a word of encouragement. Almost kind of like a, a, a good job, pat on the back. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance on how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, the reason why this is very important, and, and the reason why this is impressive, is that in the culture of Ephesus, it was highly filled with idol worship. Uh, Ephesus was a center of, of emperor worship. So the Emperor Augustus and, and, and forgive me, I can't pronounce this guy's name, Emperor Domitian, Domitian, okay? I they both put emphasis on the map as a place where they would be worshipped by their people. And also, in, in Ephesus is where the Temple Artemis is, is erected, uh, and, and that goddess was, was worshipped. And if you guys ever visit Ephesus, I don't know where it's now, but they have the ruins of that temple still in existence, and it was in that culture where people were so uh, inclined to worship idols and worship other things that the very church in Ephesus was grounded in their desire to make sure that they know truth and that they will be guardians of truth and that they would be guardians of sniffing out any false apostles and false teachers and false idols. They were heavily prideful in their intelligence, in their ability to lean upon what they believed was absolute truth. 
Now, the reason why I say that the church in Ephesus and the culture in Ephesus reminds us a little bit about us in the Bay Area today is kind of like if the, the area of Ephesus, um, we're very similar. Here in the Bay Area, we have erected both physically and spiritually different types of idol worship. Right? We may not have um, the temple Artemis, but pre-pandemic, um, there were there were temples that we really kind of quote-unquote worshipped. We, we observed, you know, great campuses of these tech industries like Facebook. It's like, wow, what a great campus. When my friends visited, we were like, hey, let me take you to Facebook. I know a guy, right? <laughs> and show him around, look at this, right? Eat all the good food. Hey, you want to go to Google? The food's not as good, but it's still awesome, Right? show you around, you know, and then they erected even, you know, Google made that weird, weird building. It looks awesome, right? Salesforce Tower, right? I mean, there's all these places that you can see and go, and, and as employees, honestly, that's what you worshiped. You spend so much time there, right? You sacrifice your time, your energy, sometimes even your family for the sake of, of wanting to succeed in that area. But also, we were, were heavily... Um, inclined to rest upon our intelligence. This idea that we are rational people, the idea that we are going to get as much information as possible to come to the most correct conclusion that we can imagine. And that bleeds even into our church. Right? We, we are very similar to the Ephesian church, and, and, and not to like you know, pat ourselves on the back, but if we have to say what is the main focus of our church, what, what is the main culture that exists here? We believe in the truth of God's word. We believe in the correct exposition of God's truth. We believe in the communication and, and the teaching and, and the nurturing of God's word to be able to be implanted in the minds of our, of our congregation, right? Um, we have Bible studies, we have great discussions, we have women's Bible studies, we have home Bible studies. In our community groups, uh, what do most people do? They do sermon discussions, right? And if not, it's okay. But, but that's what we really rest our, our laurels on. And just like the church in Ephesus, I believe perhaps that the message that we would receive if we were in this time is to the church in the Silicon Valley, I have seen your work and your toil and your patient endurance in upholding the truth and sniffing out false teachers. Now, if it just ended there, I'd be like, oh, thanks, God. But the message doesn't. He continues, and he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. But I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. And with this warning comes the consequence if they do not repent. The consequence to this warning is that if you do not repent, then I will remove my lampstand from your midst. Now, it seems kind of harsh because the work that they've done in upholding truth, the work that they've done in becoming very discerning in theology and in, and, and in truth and, 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 and lies, the fact that they are patiently enduring and working and toiling in a culture that's surrounded by idol worship and different philosophies, and yet the warning from God is you have forgotten your first love, and if you do not repent, I will remove the lampstand from your midst. Now, what is this lampstand that God is talking about? 
Well, throughout the New Testament, we see kind of two descriptions or two definitions or, or the way lamps or light is, is, is used in an analogy and metaphor. First, it is described as, as our witness. Right? When Jesus is talk, giving a parable about the lamp hitting under, uh, under a bed, he says, who has a lamp and hides it under a bed? He says, in, in the same way, you have to let your light shine. The second way that a lamp or light is used is a metaphor, uh, is, is a description of who God is. He says, Jesus is the light. His word is the lamp unto our feet. And also in the Old Testament, we see that light and fire is a description of the presence of God in the midst of his people. So when the warning and the consequence of not repenting, of forgetting their first love, meant that God would remove the lampstand from their midst, that he would remove his presence, which ultimately means that he is removing their witness from them. The removal of a lampstand from a church means that they lose all distinction from, any, from, from the things of this world. You remove God's presence from our midst, you remove our witness from our midst, then what we are is nothing but a social club. We're a gathering of people much like any other organization. The main thing that distinguishes us from that is that God's presence is in our midst and that we shine the light of God's presence to those around us to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now the question is then, what is this love that God is referring to? Well, I think it's um, two things that's actually one, right? It's loving God and loving others. Loving God and loving others. And, and this, is the, this is kind of a, a, a huge eye-opener. The fact that you can be so grounded in truth the fact that you can be dogmatic in theology, the fact that you can say, I want to discover what the truth of God's word is and do it without love should be a very frightening warning for all of us. Because the church in Ephesus, they were legit. They probably know the Bible better than me. For sure, better than the most of us, right? And yet, they were absent of love. And here's the thing, when you, when you talk about loving God and loving others, it's connected. You can't have one without the other, right? The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And the second is like this, love others as you have loved yourself, right? First uh, John, the same apostle that wrote the book of Revelation, in his epistle, First John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for, who he does not, uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So one thing is very clear. The church's love for God and love for others is something that this church in Ephesus has forsaken. And the fact that all the good that they were doing in their discernment, in their religious and theological growth, in their guardianship of truth, all that was negated by the fact that they were not actively loving God and loving others. This is a scary thought because whether we like to admit it or not, we probably have a lot more in common with the church in Ephesus than we realize. The question is, is do we truly love God? How, how do we express that? How do we practice it? Do we truly love others? 
The reality is, is the degree in which we have assimilated into the world around us really shows us what we really love. The amount of time and energy and money we spend on entertainment compared to our witness shows that maybe we truly don't love others, that we love ourselves above all. The amount of time and energy and resources spent on our own comfort perhaps is evidence that we do not truly love God, but we love ourselves above all. And like the church in Ephesus, we pride ourselves in knowledge. We pride ourselves in knowing truth. We love being able to debate and discuss theological and philosophical truths. We love talking about intellectual things. You know, uh, and I love listening to conversations about intellectual things. Sometimes I talk to some of you guys who are very smart and I have nothing else to offer except for like little jokes, you know? It makes me feel good. Like, ah, if I make a smart person laugh, then am I, am I kind of smart? You know, like you, you try to rationalize. We, we talk about all those things, but the very moment we actually audit our actions of love towards God and others, we, we're bankrupt. We don't got much in, in our accounts. So the question is this, how can we rediscover our first love? What is a practical and tangible way for us to be dedicated to God and to be a people that express our worship to God in a God-honoring way? And, 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 I, and I labored over this, right? And, and, and I had to almost kind of, you know, go back, you know, just, just throughout, you know, my time of church planning here and, and even my own faith and just the different ups and downs and, and the, you know, the maturity and the immaturity that I've gone through. And I had to be very honest. And I said, you know what, one of the reasons or one of the things that we really have to focus on is prayer. And the reason why, you know, I came up to the Bay Area was like, I don't want to be that Jesus fanatic type church, you know, like we want to be people who are intellectually and rationally being able to connect to the believer and unbeliever, to, to the people who grew up in church, people who've never experienced church. But, but through that, we lost our distinction. We lost the very thing that marks us as, an ident as, as identified as children of God which is that the rest of the world depends upon themselves and the things around them to get them through life. Christians who worship God wholly throw themselves upon the dependence and sovereignty of God. And one of the best ways, if not the main ways, we do that is through prayer. Now, then why, you know, why is prayer something that is so important in our worship? Well, one of the most countercultural practices we can think of is the spiritual discipline of prayer, which is an expression of worship as we acknowledge God's sovereignty in our lives, uh, no matter what circumstance we are in. Okay. So if Revelation is giving us a warning about the fact that humanity and churches can lose and forget their first love, now we want to look at the passage in Mark and see an example of Jesus who never, ever forsook his, forsake, forsook his first love. In uh, Mark chapter 14, 
we see a passage and an example of heartfelt worship coming from Jesus to God the Father as he acknowledges the sovereignty of God in the midst of his greatest hardship. Right? I mean, if you, if you think about this passage and if you think about this story, um, it's very interesting to see the difference between Jesus and the disciples, right? And the way that Jesus operates and perhaps the way we would operate. In the midst of difficulty and hardship, my first reaction is to give a, um, not a fake prayer, but, you know, just get it over with. I'm going to pray to God, right? And then the next thing is now, how do I use my time efficiently? What are the action items and what are the plans that I need to do? Maybe I'll gather three friends so I can get advice from them. Maybe I'll reach out to people with much more experience, people maybe who have gone through something like this before, and maybe they will tell me what I need to do or what are some possibilities to make sure that I can get out of this situation or possibly maybe they'll give me insights on, on, on some of the things on perspective of what I need to learn or what I need to change about myself. And, and we think, all right, boom, there we go, right? And nowadays it's like, hey, just see a therapist. That's like the, 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 like, that's like the golden ticket card, right? Like, you got issues, go see a therapist, right? And not that seeing a therapist is bad, I recommend it, but you know, sometimes we, we overemphasize that. Jesus, if he was one of us, knowing that what's coming is his death and crucifixion, he calls three of his most intimate disciples, his friends, Peter, John, and James, and he says, come with me. And you would think he's gonna be like, come with me, we need to talk. Judas is gonna betray me. What are you gonna, what should we do? Peter would be like, I got my sword. I'll cut off ears, you know? John's like, I could run fast. And James, I don't know much about James. You know, he's, he's just there, you know? And, and you'd be like, he'd be talking, coming up with strategy, and be like, ah, uh -huh. and after that, you'd be like, dude, this was a great meeting. Let's go. You, you would think that that would be the, the natural order of things. But instead, he says, come with me. Sit as I pray. Sit as I pray. Jesus, even in this moment of great hardship, he was going to commune with God in prayer and worship, and he wanted the three of his intimate disciples to be in that presence to worship with him. But instead, they sleep. And that's the most relatable thing that I find in Scripture. The best naps I've had were times of prayer. Right? I, I, I kind of struggle with insomnia, and the older I get, it's harder to, harder to fall asleep. Um, I'll be honest, sometimes I pray just to get, go to sleep, okay? But God's fair. He doesn't put me to sleep. Um, where, sorry, where was I going with this? <laughs> the disciples, they fall asleep, right? And, and, and we, we kind of laugh about it, but the reality is, is why? Why, do we, why did they fall asleep? And I think about it like this. If Jesus said, come with me, we're going to go off to the side, and I'm here to answer any and every question that you guys have. Do you think they would have fallen asleep? No. They would have been having a conversation. Jesus would be answering questions. They'd be like, this is amazing. Right? And, and, and it's the, the lack of response that often bores us or makes us feel that prayer is inadequate. We are a people who want and expect and almost demand answers as soon as possible. You know why I don't like emails? Because no one responds right away. 
You know what I hate the most? Customer service emails. When I go to a company and they don't have a phone number and it's just the email, I'm like, ugh, right? I email them because I know they're not going to email me for like two days. What the heck is that? And then if they, even if they have a phone number, then I call and say, I know I'm going to be in, like on hold for 30 minutes. I'm like, ah, you know, I'm like pushing every, like dial four, you know, like, you know, and just like, I, I want to talk to somebody right now. You know, it's that mentality. Let me speak to your manager right now. We, we demand answers, right? When I was growing up, schoolwork, it took a lot of time. I had to go to the, I had to go look at encyclopedias to look up. You guys don't even know what an encyclopedia is? I didn't say Wikipedia, encyclopedia. You gotta look stuff up. I would have to go to the school library and then I would have to open like a little tiny mini drawer with little cards and you, I don't even know what it's called anymore. It's like, and you have to look, you know, like, look up a number and then you have to, it was like a treasure hunt every time you're looking for a book. That's why the internet, we were so fascinated by the internet. When I first about, heard about Ask Jeeves, do you guys know Ask Jeeves? I'm gonna ask Jeeves everything, right? That's why we love Google and this is why we love AI and ChatGPT. Literally anything that we ask, this artificial intelligence has an answer and it's instantaneous. It's instantaneous, right? Any question, ask it, boom, here you go. I don't even know if it's true, but I believe it because it's artificial intelligence. And the reason why it's so difficult for us to pray is because we assume prayer is an opportunity for us to ask and demand things of God. And that's a small part of it. But the real reason why God gives us the spiritual discipline and the avenue for which we can encounter him through prayer is because he wants us to worship him in the midst of his presence. And this is exactly what Jesus models for us. Because think about it. In the time of greatest distress, Jesus does not try to seek answers. He does not try to strategize. He does not come up with action items. He knows that the most important thing that he must do is commune with God to encounter the Father and to acknowledge his sovereignty in all things. Prayer is an announcement from our souls saying we trust and believe you, God, that you are sovereign and good and that you are in control of all things. That even when the world and all of our circumstances tell us that you are not good, that things are not okay, that we can rest our souls upon the goodness of God, it is a form of adoration and gratitude and dependence upon a God who is sovereign and, and, and of the universe. And Jesus, out of all people at this very moment, can be the only one that might say, God, I need you to answer me at this moment. But there's no response from God. Right? Jesus prays, God, if you will, take this cup from me. And he says, not as I will, as you will. Like, if, if my child, one of my children, uh, going through a difficult time, called me and said, Dad, take this away from me, but I know, I know it's all in God's plan. I'm just like, mm. And I said nothing, 
Uh, that would suck. You got to at least be like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I love you. So anything, right? I, I don't know. That, that's how good I am at words. Um, just say anything, right? But there's no response from God. Tim Keller, um, pastor who just recently passed away, um, you know, and he wrote a book on prayer, and he said this about prayer. He says, silence does not equate to absence. Silence in prayer does not equate to the absence of God. Even through silence, the presence of God exists. Because imagine with me here, if, if you've read the Gospels, you see that there's a time in Jesus' ministry when God does respond. At the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, as he is baptized, the dove comes down, he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So there is, there is a response from God, and yet at the most difficult time in Jesus' earthly life, as he prays to him, to the point where blood is coming out of his pores, it says, to the point where he says, pray with me for I am grieving, I am distressed beyond distress. I'm, he's saying, I'm filled with so much grief that I can die. And he prays to God, and he says, God, take this cup from me, not as I will, but as you will. And there's silence. But Jesus was not hurt by that silence. Because he understood that in that moment, he was worshiping God the Father. That even in silence, that God's presence was among him. That God's presence was with him. It wouldn't be until he's crucified on the cross where God would turn his back on him. For us, it's difficult for us to pray because oftentimes we don't receive any response. But our prayers is not about the response. It's about us encountering and communing with the God, worshiping him to acknowledge who he is. Now, with that, um, I wanted to spend the time now in really a time of extended prayer. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Now, we're going to practice and we're going to worship God in prayer together as one body. This may feel uncomfortable, and it may feel different, but I believe that it is something that we must rediscover to truly understand who is, what is our first love and how can we worship God.